Lord, you are worthy of praise. We sing praises to you. So now, Lord, we wait for you. By your spirit, open up our hearts, open up your word, open up the truth to us. Because, Lord, you are the only place where truth is. Lord, there are lies everywhere around us, and it's it's deafening to hear what the world says, especially about the issue of justice. So, Lord, I pray that today that you would help us, help us to understand what you are telling us, and help us to apply it to our lives, even though it runs very contrary to what we hear. So we thank you, Father, in advance for what you will do in Jesus' name. Well, the song for the day is Imagine by John Lennon and uh, his wife, Yoko Ono. Here are the lyrics to one of the most influential, one of the most popular songs of all time. I'm not going to sing. I wouldn't sing this anyway. But imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. I imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Isn't that nice? I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Lori Ulster in Biography Magazine did a deep dive into the backstory of this song. Let me give you some pertinent points that she wrote in this kind of lengthy article, actually. It was only written a couple months ago. Now I understand what you have to do to put your political message across. You need to do it with a little honey, said John Lennon about this song, Imagine. It's been sung by artists in every genre, from Liza Minnelli to Stevie Wonder to Neil Young to Lady Gaga, and performed at some of the biggest events across the globe. The Olympics, New Year's, concerts for peace, concerts for hunger. The impact of this song is unquestionable, but disguised within its message of peace and love and its flowing piano melody is a collection of edgy, dangerous ideas that challenge society as we know it. Imagine is the song that has become an anthem all over the world. It took one session for Lennon and his wife to compose and record the song. And as an aside, (laughs) In my own personal opinion, writing and recording a song of this magnitude in one sitting just doesn't happen. Is there something supernatural, as in the realm of spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places going on? Quite possibly, I think. Ulster continues, Lennon composed the song sitting at his white grand piano at his home studio in Tittenhurst Park State, situated on 21 acres in England in May 1971. Again, as an aside, in my opinion, it's very interesting given the subject matter of the song because he's talking about how great it would be to have no possessions. (laughs) The song was released on October 11, 1971, and everybody knew the song was special, but no one could have imagined the impact it would have on the world. Bono said it was the reason for his career. Jimmy Carter said, my wife and I have visited about 125 countries 
And you hear imagine used almost equally with national anthems. Imagine has been accepted all over the world as a song of peace and unity as it asks us to embrace what early critics labeled as communism. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no countries. Imagine no possessions and no religion, too. That's the message of the song. Lennon was approached by the World Church asking if they could use it if they could only change one word of the lyrics from no religion to one religion. What did Lennon say? No. He explained that that would defeat the whole purpose of the song. And since his death, Ono has been approached many times by groups who wanted to do the same thing, and she consistently refuses. No doubt all the world's fanatics are imagining one religion, but that's the opposite of what he was singing about. Now, I begin this message today with this depressing notion from the point of view of a true Christian, but an extremely meaningful message from the point of view of those who are sold out to justice the world's way. In other words, social justice. And we know how big social justice is in our world today, don't we? You might be thinking, we're going to talk about social justice today? Really? I thought this was a sermon, you know, from the Bible. You know, and you would be 100% right, even 1,000% right. But, you know, God has told us through the Apostle Peter that he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through his written word. And this includes talking about the subject of justice. Now, justice is a biblical concept, beginning with God himself, because one of God's attributes is what? He is just. Justice is what God's people are to practice. And one of the most often quoted passages proclaimed by just about everybody around regarding this issue was spoken by the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I'm convinced, though, that this biblical issue of justice has been hijacked by the world, even by satanic forces. Justice has been twisted into something that bears no resemblance to the justice the Lord once displayed. How we need to understand the difference between the way the world applies justice and the way that God wants it applied, and God's word tells us how to do this. Now, it's not difficult to figure out justice God's way. What is difficult, though, is for God's people to go against the grain of what the world says, what justice is, and how to apply it, and then to apply it the way that God commands. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that, in large measure, what passes for justice in the world today is social justice. Now, it sounds like it's the right thing for everybody to practice, isn't it? For is justice applied at the social level? But beginning in the early part of the 20th century, social justice took on a Marxist flavor. And now this issue is full-blown Marxism. When we think it's social justice, that's what we need to be thinking about. See, if we remember our history, Marxism was a system which pit one group of people, the worker class, against another group of people, the class that holds the power. Marx and Engels, in their infamous book, the Communist Manifesto showed that what lies at the heart of all the world's problems was simply the existence of multiple economic 
classes. The idea is that the economic class with the power oppresses those with no power. And so the answer to all the world's ills, according to them, is to get rid of the economic classes. And just like that, all the world's problems would be solved. Brilliant, isn't it? But this would not be easy. Now, Marx and Engels understood this because they said there must be a violent, forceful overthrow of all the established norms of their culture. A revolution. And evil men fully embrace this idea of revolution. And horrifically, the movement called communism began. And all I have to do is just mention two people, and we understand exactly what this is. We're talking about Lenin. We're talking about Stalin. When they espouse this, when they started to do their revolution, how many millions of people perished under their hand? They've got blood on their hands, and they're going to answer to the Lord, aren't they? Now, one would think that this bloody mess called communism would be rejected out of hand. But alas, Satan is a master deceiver. And why change tactics if they work so well? See, indeed, Satan's tactics are alive and well today. But communism as a label isn't lovingly embraced by a whole lot of people. No, the label has changed, now called social justice. At its core, the current understanding of social justice seeks to divide people into different categories and convince the members to see themselves as oppressed victims, and they need to rise up and engage in revolution. But there's a common thing with all of these groups, and that they seem to have one target, and that is the overthrow of established norms in our culture. But what are those established norms in our culture? What are the bedrock things that make up our culture? The short answer is that anything that God has established. Let me give you a few of these things that God has established in our culture. Traditional marriage, as we would call it traditional, but really, what is it? It's marriage, isn't it? That there are only two sexes, male and female. There is no 64,000 gender or whatever, only two. The two-parent intact family. Personal private property. The worship of the true and living God and the promotion of the Christian church and traditional authority structures, and our need to obey them. These are the things that God invented, and these are bedrock in our culture. But have you noticed where the culture has gone over the last several years, in large measure because of social justice? See, social justice seeks to do away with these things. Notions of social justice, racial justice, economic justice, and now reproductive justice, and we know what that is, don't we? it's called abortion and now infanticide, are all committed to tearing down these God-established norms in our culture. And they're doing a good job at it, aren't they? Consider any of these things I just mentioned. For example, anybody who insists that marriage is defined as, and I, I, I can't believe I'm actually having to describe it this way, one biologically born man and one biologically born woman committed to a lifelong relationship, if that's said in the wrong place to the wrong person at the wrong time, it could be classified as hate speech. So what is the basis for this kind of so-called justice? It's one's identity with a certain group. It's the color of one's skin. It's the sexual orientation or gender identity. And those in power usually call these groups 
protected classes. And I would say protected from what? Or from whom? Well, it's from all those who would dare to say things like, you know, God made you male and you can't change your sex, no matter what. Or regardless of how much reparation you receive, you cannot make up for what happened in your past. In trying to make the LGBT plus, 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 plus class, or people of color, or any other group totally acceptable in our culture, the established systems, which are systemically flawed, must be completely torn down to where there are no classes of people, no distinctions, and all are completely accepted. This is what they're aiming for. And that's not all, because that's not even the heart of the issue. The heart of social and racial justice is wealth redistribution where the rich must give away their riches to those who don't have as much as they do. Well, how is that done? We know how it's done, don't we? The regulation, and as you look at your paycheck every other week, what is it? Taxes, increasing taxes, increasing taxes. It's called redistribution. And the ultimate goal in social and racial justice is that no one owns anything. The phrase, Abolition or doing away with private property is at the very core of the modern idea of justice. No classes of people, absolute equality of outcome, and no one owning anything. Remember a guy named Klaus Schwab who said this, you're going to own nothing and you're going to be happy. So where did all this come from? What is the heart of all this? Let's follow the trail. Social justice came from something called critical theory, which advanced into critical race theory, which came from Marxism as outlined in the Communist Manifesto. That's the direct line. So let me tell you a little bit about Karl Marx, if you don't know already. In short, Marx was an absolutely evil man. Contrary to popular belief, he was not an atheist. He claimed he was, but he wasn't. See, Marx knew of God's existence. When he was a kid, I believe one or both of his parents, you know, really exposed him to Christianity. But Marx had an absolute enraged hatred against God. It was like, God doesn't exist and I hate him, that kind of thing. Indeed, he had a knowledge of God. And we know this because the Lord put the knowledge of himself into his heart. This is what God has done with every person, isn't that right? But there's another reason why we know that Marx hated God. In the book, The Devil and Karl Marx, the author Paul Kegner traced through Marx's life and discovered some revolting things by reading Marx's very dark poetry. And he wrote a lot of poetry. He fancied himself a great poet. In one of his poems, Marx refers to we humans as apes of a cold God, while describing the evil one in the very same poem as a, quote, voluptuously warm viper. See, he hated God with a passion, but he had a real love affair with Satan. And since Marx completely rejected God, in all of his convoluted mind and his thinking, he saw in his mind the world's problems through a basic idea of unfairness of the haves and the have-nots in this life. If everybody would be exactly equal, then there would be no desire for one man to steal from another. No one would feel superior over the other because everybody would have total equality of material things. This, Marx thought, was the answer to all of our problems. 
So what Marx and every other Marxist after him failed to take into account, though, was the things of this world are not the issue. Where is the problem? It's in the heart. That's where the problem lies. See, Jesus spoke truth as he always does when he said this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, Jesus says, come from within and they defile a person. So regarding social and racial justice, think CRT, think Black Lives Matter, think all things LGBT++++, think economic justice and redistribution of wealth. None of these things are true justice because none of these things deal with the heart. Justice, God's way, deals with the heart and with the realities of life. Now, I guess to Marxism's credit, this is their way of trying to deal with the human condition, the brokenness. They try to fix the world in their way, but their way is the way of man. And what scriptures say about the way of man, the ways they're in are the ways of death. And that's exactly what's happening in Marxist thought. Marxism and its children of social and racial justice have no power to fix even one broken, rebellious heart. Isn't that true? So what's the alternative? Justice, God's way, needs to be applied. So what's justice for anyway? In a nutshell, it's to make things right when wrong has been done. It's doing the right thing. Say, for example, I steal from you something. I steal food from you. I steal a lot of it. And I get caught. Justice needs to be done, doesn't it? Go like this. It does. It needs to be done. Even though it's me, right? It needs to be done. Now, can there be other things that go along with this, like mitigating circumstances, for example? Let's just say that you didn't know that, uh, you know, Kitty and I weren't in dire straits. And I needed some food to feed us. And I knew where your pantry is. So I broke into your house, got the food. Because I was starving and Kitty was starving, we needed something to eat. Would that have changed the issue? Maybe. But what if you were really, really ticked off? You could have thrown the book at me, right? Good. Or maybe you could have forgiven. See, if you would have forgiven, justice would have been done. Because justice would have been covered by grace, by, by mercy, by forgiveness. See, the, the issue about justice is a sinful action is not just blown off and ignored. It's dealt with. That's justice. So how is justice to be done God's way? I set all this up to talk about our passage for today. Deuteronomy 16, starting in verse 18 through 17, 20. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to walk through this whole thing today in any kind of depth at all. But there are some things that we need to talk about. We can't do this in depth because you look at the culture of the day and you look at our culture and it's far different. You know, for example, we're going to talk a little bit about kings today. How many of us in our country think that we have a king? Some people think that they're king, but we don't, right? We don't have a king in our country. And then, you know, the the, the priests and the judges and the way it's set up is not the way that we set things up here. So we can't take these things from Deuteronomy and apply them directly to us. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to take the principles here. And so I'm going to crystallize what is in these passages. We're not going to go at line by line. But we're going to take these principles and hopefully we can, we can apply these principles to our day and to our lives. So finally, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, 18 to 20. And we're going to read these verses here so that we can see what Moses has to say about justice, God's way. And then, you know, I'm again going to crystallize what's going on here in verses 1 to 20 of Deuteronomy 17. So Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. Notice how the Lord describes justice in a righteous judgment. In a nutshell, what that simply means is that these people who are in charge, they're making decisions according to the ways of Yahweh. And that requires not only knowing the Lord in a personal way, it also requires people knowing his word. We're going to see later on in this book that every seven years, everyone was to come together and they were to listen as a nation, listen to the entire book of Deuteronomy being read to them in one sitting. And they need to know God's written word. And that's the positive aspect about this, about justice, God's way. Notice also three negative aspects when it comes to exercising God's justice, God's way. No perversion of justice. No showing partiality. And no accepting of bribes. And then Moses says, justice and only justice you shall follow. Now justice. God's way is exactly the opposite of justice, the world's way. See, social and racial justice have a standard. And what is that standard? It's a classification of a certain protected class or classes. It has very little to do with whether a person is guilty or innocent. But it has everything to do with what the culture considers as an acceptable class of persons. But God's way of justice has to do with the individual's behavior, their deeds. It's one's acts stemming from the heart is what God focuses on in the application of justice. If a violation of the Lord's ways has occurred, then justice needs to be done. It matters not if a person is rich or poor or a certain ethnicity, because, again, we've, we've seen this over and over again. There were sojourners that were attached to Israel, so different ethnicities or whether they were male or female. God is no respecter of persons who is to be stamped on the eyeballs of those who are to administer God's justice. But notice the implication. Everybody's to gain a sense of justice. In verse 19, the judge is not to accept the bribe. That's obviously from a fellow Israelite, right? And so not only was the judge to take no bribe, no Israelite was to offer a bribe either. The next issue of, of justice was God's right to be worshipped and his people's obligation to worship him aright. Deuteronomy 16, uh, 21, chapter 17, verse 7 is where that's found. Now, those of you who've been through the study, you know, behold your God, 
he reminds us in the study that God has rights. Now, when I first heard that, it was foreign to my ears. I had no idea that God has rights. And perhaps this may be your first time of hearing this as well. But the Lord has every right, doesn't he, to expect from his people that they worship him and him alone. And after all, he is the most high God. And when his people go and commit spiritual adultery, the Lord is the injured party, isn't he? See, we tend to think of God being out there as some kind of a ethereal thing. But he's a person. He's the greatest person in the world, in the universe. And when we, as God's people, go off and worship idols, guess what we're doing? We are injuring another person, the greatest person in the universe. And so in this case, justice must be done. And in this case, the Lord commands that the death penalty be for those who deliberately worship other gods. Now, that's pretty harsh. But who are you talking about? The true and living God, the God of the universe. We dare not commit high treason against him. See, in this scenario, there is no indication that the idolater repented. And so this person is going after other gods on a continual basis. It's not just one time that the person just kind of bows down maybe momentarily. No, we're talking about an ongoing, continued thing. And God says, no, stop doing that or else you're going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but I praise the Lord for his mercy, don't you? <laughs> How many times have we committed a spiritual adultery in our hearts against the Lord? See, Christ died for our sins. And whenever I commit spiritual adultery, guess what I deserve and what you deserve? We deserve death. But the Lord, the ever-faithful one, works with me and convicts me of sin. And he's so patient. And so Jesus, as the injured party, already took my sin, though, hadn't he? He already placed it upon his shoulders. He died for this sin. The Lord went to the cross. And it's been said that he stood where I belong. He died for me in my place. In Christ, justice has been meted out. The justice that I deserve was meted out to him. And what a deterrent, by the way. For me to not sin. I don't want to have his death be in vain, as it were. What about you? And so in verses 8 to 13, there are many opportunities here for judges and priests to work together to come up with wise and just and righteous pronouncements regarding the behavior of certain individuals. That was the reason for this justice system to set it up because of all kinds of different things that could have happened. For example, Homicide, different ways or different uh, cases of homicide or various legal rights or assault. The citizens in Israel are, sin are sinners after all, right? They need to take care of these things. But there's also a little bit of a wrinkle here with this passage. If the priest and the judge judges were to come up for punishment, say to a guy named John, and John, you know, he heard the announcement that he was supposed to do a certain thing, and he refused to obey them, he was to die. And why was that? Because he was resisting, and he was refusing, and he was rebelling against the authority that God had put in place. Now, why would that be a thing? Why would that be so important? John's death would be an example for the rest of the people, so that they would not rebel against authority. And so John, when he would not obey what they said, he would be effectively injuring everybody in his town. 
the people would be emboldened to disobey the Lord whenever justice is not served. And finally, in verses 13 to 20, we see that even kings are to have a sense of justice. Moses predicts that Israel is going to have a king like all the other nations. And when that happens, the king is to live a just life. He is not to multiply horses, which is an indication of military power. He's not allowed to multiply wives, which is an indication of political alliances. He's also not allowed to amass excessive money. In other words, the king's aim was to rule his people well, rather than take advantage of his power to make himself rich. He was to be the servant. Something else this future king was supposed to do, in order to prove to himself that he was not above the law of God, but he was under authority of God's law like everybody else, the king was to take a piece of parchment and he was to write out the entire book of Deuteronomy, front to back. He was supposed to write this out and he was supposed to read it all the days of his life. The Lord commanded in advance that the king was to have a strong spiritual core. He was to have, as it were, a daily quiet time before the Lord so that he could gain God's wisdom in learning how to uh, rule the people. Read the book of Deuteronomy on a regular basis was a great way to get to know the Lord. And this stands to reason because of all the people who should know exactly what it means to apply God's justice God's way, it should be who? The king, right? The king was to represent God. He was the anointed one to make God look good in front of the people, to glorify him. He was literally endowed by the Holy Spirit to do what the Lord would have him do. And with the Spirit's anointing, he could be the king that the Lord wanted him to be. Without the Spirit's anointing, it was disaster. If you know your Old Testament, remember the, remember King Saul. When, Saul. when the Holy Spirit was taken away from Saul, what happened to him? No wonder David prayed in Psalm 51 that the Lord would not take the Spirit away from him after he committed adultery and after he got rid of um, Bathsheba's husband. David was quite concerned about the Lord removing the Spirit from him. And after the Lord forgave him, what did he do? He joyfully wrote about this in Psalm 32, 1-2, to and he says, Blessed is the one whose progression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And the bottom line for any future king of Israel was that he would be all about obeying the Lord, not turning to the right hand or to the left, so he might have a long reign as king. Because if he disobeyed the Lord, what would the Lord do? More than likely, get rid of him, right? Kill him. So, what do we do with this as God's people? 21st century, what do we do? How do we as God's people apply justice God's way? First, we need to remember the source of social justice along with racial justice, economic justice, reproductive justice, and all of this put together is as lumped together with one word, and that is Marxism. It's communism, plain and simple. We need to find out what areas of our God-established culture and a certain claim of justice seeks to do away with, and then have the courage to call it out. When we, when we hear things like economic justice, what does God say about economic justice? He said, no, because we have property rights. You know, two of the Ten Commandments deal with property rights. Which ones are they? Thou shalt not what? Steal. And thou shalt not what? 
covet. So God cares about our personal property rights. What is this whole thing about economic justice? It's stealing from us. So again, we need to call it out. We need to have the courage to do that. So what is God's justice? It deals with one's individual behavior, not social class, not skin color. We must resist seeing justice the way the world sees it. For again, justice as the world's way is not justice at all. It has a satanic source, Karl Marx. Of course, refusing to see justice as the world sees it won't make us popular with the world, will it? So we need to expect something. And what is that? Push back. They're going to push back against anybody who doesn't agree with them, and sometimes vigorously. Remember the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples the night before he was crucified. John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also what? Persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The bottom line is, don't believe or perpetuate a lie. We don't judge on outward appearance. We judge according to the behavior. And we judge, as Martin Luther King said, not on the color of one's skin, but on the content of their character. We need to be consistent with this. Second application is that we work for justice in God's way by preparing for the day when utopia will be realized. And when will that be? When he comes back. When Jesus comes back, there will be no class struggle. We will all have everything that we need. And this means we need to prepare ourselves for the next life in the here and now. See, in one sense, seeing Marxism as our enemy ought to shake us loose from having too strong of an attachment to this world and to the things of this world. See, Marx and Engels were convinced, though in a perverted way, that attachment to the things of this world was a source of all evil. But the scripture gives us two challenges in this regard. First, we need to heed the words of our Lord in Mark 8.36. For what does a prophet, a man, a woman, a young person, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, as we know, it's not evil to have things, but it is evil to allow things to have us, to capture our affections and our attention and our priorities. We need to hold on to our resources and possessions with an open hand so that whenever the Lord requires them of us, we give them away and we give them away freely. Because whose possession are they really? It's the Lord's anyway, right? And the second challenge is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And in a word, this life is not all there is. We will give an account of how we lived our lives here and now. And therefore, we persuade others of the realities of the ways of the Lord, of their need to get ready to face him, the one whom Marx hated so much, who will give an account to him one day. And so my question for all of us is, where are you in all of this? Have you bought into the satanic drivel about some kind of social, racial wokeness? Or are you committed to justice, God's way? Are you a man, a woman? a young person of integrity who judges others 
not on their outward appearance, but on the content of their character. May the Lord make us bold in our witness. May we proclaim the truth because we love people. You know, we hear so often that we need to speak the truth in love. Well, if you speak to someone who is anti-God, who hates God, we can be as nice and as cordial as we want to be, but how will they see it? They'll see it as hate. So we speak the truth because we love people, even if they don't think that we love them. The Lord called us to care for others. And what better way than to show them true justice and to remind them of the coming of the King. Let's pray together. Father, these are serious issues for a serious time. And Lord, as we examine just a little bit about the satanic origin of social justice, racial justice, economic justice, reproductive justice, all that stuff. Lord, all that is garbage. All of it. But Lord, we understand something. That justice, true justice, is of you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand the difference. I pray that we will adhere to true justice regardless of what the world says, regardless of what anybody tells us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to speak the truth because we love people. And most of all, because we love you and because you've loved us first. So I thank you now, Father, for these things. Seal them to our hearts, these things that your spirit has has brought into our hearts. And I pray now, Father, as we turn our attention to yet a couple more activities of worship, may we do them with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because you alone are worthy in Jesus' name.